Some of you know I have a very strange hobby, which is racing pigeons. And uh, this story relates to my hobby, and here's some pictures to entertain you. Um, but uh, what happens during the winter months is uh, on Friday nights I have to go to my pigeon club and we put the pigeons in baskets and then someone has to take them all the way out to Fairfield Showground and put them on a big semi-trailer with all the pigeon fancy from all over Sydney go and then someone is paid to drive that truck off down the south coast this year where they then get let out on a Saturday morning. Uh, that's the background of this. So on last Friday I'm <coughs> sorry, going out to um, Fairfield in a car for about an hour each way with a, a bloke called Barry uh, and we usually only speak about things like pigeons and nothing else when we get together. Uh, Barry, by background, is a tree lopper by profession. He's about my age and by his own reckoning, he's not all that educated. However, on this occasion, Barry starts asking me some really intriguing and unusual questions. And there's something like this. First of all, out of the blue, he says to me, do you believe in fate? I'm thinking, gee, Barry, where's this coming from? I said, no, I believe in faith and that God's in control of everything. Okay, a bit of a pause there. Then he says to me, do you believe in reincarnation? I thought, boy, Barry, this is getting deeper by the minute. I said, uh, no, I believe in resurrection. I said, that's the best life. Why would you want to come back and do this all over again? Another pause, and then he says, do you believe in spirits? I'm thinking, my hat. I said, well, he says, I believe we're embodied spirits. And I thought we are starting to get on some ground where I might be able to agree with him. And I said, well, I believe in the spiritual world, I don't think people pay enough attention to the spiritual uh, nature that we are and they pay too much attention to the physical world while they're here. Not, no, not enough to the eternal, preparing for the fact that they're going to die one day. Yeah, okay. Another pause. He then floors me, and if you saw this guy, you, you'd be floored too, he tells me that he's a medium. A medium. Now, a medium is someone who, well, thinks they speak to the spirit realm and can speak to the dead, that sort of thing. That's sort of a whole idea of communicating. He says he listens to podcasts of some high-profile medium who, casts out, who can contact the dead, and he really thinks that's great, and he hears things that other people can't hear. Uh, he says to me, what do you think? Well, I paused again, and I said, I think it's a cultic and of the devil, and you need to be very careful. Oh, he paused again. And I said to him then, how do you know that what they say is true and that they can speak to the dead? He looked at me and said, well, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know, I'll have to think about that. Well, after that, things went silent and we went back to talking about pigeons. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest, since that conversation, I've been sort of in a state of shock, um, puzzled, yeah, both of those things. Shocked that he could believe such what I would call weird and unusual things, to put it nicely, and shocked that I was reminded of just how lost people are without the Lord Jesus, without the truth of the gospel that sets us free. I mean, he even spoke about uh, the good Lord putting him here to do good as a medium. Well, I couldn't help but think of last week's passage in Titus, which said, in Titus 1 verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Which is why, as we saw last week in Titus 1, it's so important for the church to have godly leadership that preaches the truth of Christ crucified, risen and Lord, which Max brought us to our attention last week, so that they also refute the untruths and false teaching that is so prevalent and can easily creep into the church today. 
So as we turn to Titus 2, Paul continues to emphasise teaching and practice in the church. But in chapter 2, he focuses on, in the first part anyway, on six categories of people within the church and how they behave is meant to be a powerful reflection of the truth and embodiment of the gospel. So that's where we're going tonight. Let me just pause and pray for us and then we'll dig into God's Word together. Loving Lord, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. We thank you that we have the freedom to meet together, to sing your praises, to hear your word. And we do pray again that by your spirit, Lord, you would help us to hear what your word says to us. Again, convict us of the beautiful truth in your word and give us joy, Lord, in seeking to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter 1, Paul the Apostle has been identifying the practices and preaching of the false teachers and so then as he opens chapter 2 he says, you however, he's talking to Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now the emphasis on sound doctrine should be hard to miss in these chapters because in this chapter alone he speaks of teaching six times, the words repeated constantly and he's not just talking about an intellectual understanding, although that's important, but the practical application of that sound doctrine. And that word sound originally means healthy or wholesome, that's what he's talking about, healthy or wholesome teaching. And this teaching is meant to lead to the transformation of the believer, so that they experience true spiritual health, that's what he's talking about here. But this sound doctrine is meant to be applied. So when he uses that word teaching, he's really talking about how that works out in real life. Sound doctrine is verbal, obviously, it has to be taught, we have to hear it and be taught it, but it's also meant to be visual, is what Paul's talking about here, in the life of the believer, as we are changed by the truth. As Paul tells Titus, he says, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And that word appropriate simply means what fits in with, what's right with sound doctrine. Teach what is in accord with the truth of the gospel in terms of its application to everyday life. And so he's talking about an applied theology, not just a nice theory and the reality is I don't know if you realize this but we are all theologians every one of us theology is simply the study of God or the understanding of God and sadly theology has a bad name we all have a theology of God even unbelievers and our theology is foundational to everything that we do I don't know if you realize that our behavior is always determined by our beliefs Which is why, as followers of Jesus, we want to be sure we have sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, good theological understanding, because poor theology will lead to ungodly living and moral compromise. So that's how Paul opens up this chapter, but then as he turns, goes on, he turns in chapter, verses 2 through 10, he identifies six groups of people within the church, uh, instructing them on how to live out the gospel of grace in community and so here's the six categories older men younger uh, sorry older men older women younger women young men he talks about Titus for a verse or two and then about slaves and the older men he tells them to be temperate worthy of respect self-controlled and sound in faith in love and endurance in essence he's saying that the older men are to conduct themselves with dignity that's what that idea of being temperate is it's being dignified And he wants them to act with maturity as they exhibit the Christian virtues of faith, love 
and hope, which he talks about there. And as this section unfolds, what the Apostle is emphasising is that older Christians should act as models and mentors of what sound doctrine looks like as it's lived out, and then to do that with younger Christians. That same principle applies to the older women, he goes on to say in verse 3. Likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but what is good. Then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, and he goes on a little bit further there. See, the older women, women are called to be reverent. And again, this word carries the idea of conducting themselves in a way that is befitting of a holy person. Or as one other translator said, it's befitting of someone who practices the presence of God in all that they do. That's a lovely way to think about behaviour for older women, isn't it? Befitting a holy person. Interestingly, they are to avoid two particular moral failings, they're not to be slanderers or gossips and drinkers or addicted to much wine. Now, it is interesting that he put slander and drinking together for older women, I'm not sure why that is the case, but I suspect it's because he knows, as we all know, that drinking too much wine will usually lead to saying too much, which might not be helpful or appropriate in a particular situation. It could be true of any of us. Instead of using their mouths for putting people down, though, older women are to instead teach by word and example what is good. And that's another word that keeps coming up in this chapter. But either way, the byproduct of the older women living reverent lives is so to be a model to younger women in living out the gospel. And so Paul paints a picture here of the Christian community and how we all have a part to play in mentoring the next generation. And this is actually one of the big themes of the pastoral epistles, including 1 and 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul, for example, is teaching and modelling sound doctrine to the young leaders, Timothy and Titus. They, in turn, are passing the baton on to the next generation through their leadership as they mentor and model the, the new leadership teams in, on the island of Crete. Uh, it's an example of model and a model of disciples making disciples. We've talked about that a bit here in the last few years. That's the sort of church we want to be. And the older men and women, likewise, are to teach and model godliness to the younger men and women. That's the picture Paul is painting here. See, healthy churches will be committed to mentoring and modelling to the next generation of believers. In healthy churches, this should be evident across the generations, which is why we have in our services people of all ages. It's actually healthier for us, although that's not always the case. So I wonder, is there someone, a younger Christian that you know in this church that you could walk alongside and mentor and encourage? doesn't take a lot, you just got to meet up for a coffee once a month, just chat, talk about life and, and maybe talk about a Bible verse or something that's encouraging. It's as simple as that, we all could do it. And when I was a young Christian, I had a youth leader who was, made a profound impact on my life and how you live out the gospel. Uh, I was about uh, 14, between 14 and 18, I think, when this, I had this leader. He demonstrated to me the priorities of the kingdom. Uh, he was passionate for the kingdom. He had a great love for the lost and was prepared to pay the price to uh, make the gospel known. He showed me what it meant to do what is good as a Christian. He was a walking example of the gospel to me, and I'll be forever thankful to him. And the younger generation today need us to show them what it means to live the good life 
of following Jesus because the world in which they are growing up has distorted the truth and what is good. We now live in a world, as you know, as well as I do, that on many levels says that sin is good. What's sin anyway? No big deal. Sin is good. It's the world's moral compass is broken in so many ways. It's taken God out of the equation and what is good is now determined by, well, everybody. Whatever you think is good is good. Like, whatever feels good to you, well, that's fine. Whatever you feel is your reality and it's good. Don't let anyone tell you that it's wrong or it might be unhelpful. Little wonder our young people are confused with all the mixed messages they are bombarded with daily on the television and through social media. What is good for God's people is described in this chapter as having slightly different characteristics according to gender and age, but it stands in stark contrast to the practices of the world. Now, there isn't time for me to go into all the little bits and pieces that Paul addresses there for different age groups and genders, but one that he mentions constantly is self-control. I don't know if you noticed that. He talks about older men having to be in self-control. Uh, older women in verse 3, well, they will certainly need to be self-controlled if they're not going to slander and drink too much wine. Uh, younger women, he says, but you need to be self-controlled and pure in verse 5. Younger men, he definitely says, need to have self-control. And then in chapter, uh, verse 10, he talks about slaves. Uh, well, they would need self-control if they're not going to be stealing and if they're, not going to be, if they're going to be trusted in any way. So self-control for each gender and age group it might have a slight different application, but it refers to the same idea of self-mastery. That's what it's talking about. Self-mastery over our tongues, over our tempers, over our ambitions, over our appetites, including sexual desires, where the Christian standard for young and old alike is purity and chastity before marriage and fidelity after marriage. So it's relevant to young and old. But I think it is worth asking, why do you think the Apostle singles out self-control as such an essential virtue for God's people in the community of grace? I'm not sure that he tells us, but it's interesting that he does, and I think it's because the way of the world is marked by a complete lack of self-control. This is how Paul describes the unbeliever, which we were once in Ephesians 2. He says, "'As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins,' in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, at one time gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Another way of saying, total lack of self-control. Self-control for the person who has experienced the grace of Christ shows they are no longer controlled by the passions and desires of the flesh. We are no longer slaves to that, we are now slaves to Christ through the power of the Spirit in us. And so self-control lies at the heart of what it looks like for Christians to be distinctive and to show the world what good really looks like in practice. As far as Paul is concerned, everyone in the community of grace, from the leaders right down to the youngest members, needs to be taught what is good and shown what it means to live out that truth in everyday life. So true discipleship is both taught, yes, but it's also caught. It needs to be seen. We all know how true that is in our lives. But there is also a clear purpose behind these instructions for the community of grace. I don't know if you noticed it there. The way we live is to commend the gospel, not to bring it into disrepute. 
So in verse 5 he said, so that, when he's talking about younger women, that are behaving in this particular way, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Even in his instruction to Titus, he says, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say against you. And then in his instructions to the slaves, he concludes by saying, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. See, the way we live as people in the community of grace is meant to make the good news of the gospel attractive. Now, there's a thought, isn't it? Attractive. In the original language, that word translated as attractive for us was used to describe the way you arrange jewels in order to display their beauty. It's a really lovely picture. One commentator said this, the gospel is a jewel while a consistent Christian life is like the setting in which the gospel jewel is displayed. It can add luster to it. I think it's a, just a lovely image to have in mind about us and the potential we have. See, Paul's point is that in the community of grace, the way that we apply the teaching of the Scripture in the way we live can bring adornment to the gospel on the one hand, or it could bring discredit to the gospel. I just think that's a lovely thought there, but a challenging one as well. It made me think about, uh, I went to a gathering last Saturday for this lady, there's a lady in the middle there, it was her 100th birthday, Karen and I were there celebrating with her, it's Alison, we've known her for quite a while. Uh, she came to mind as I thought about someone who was an adornment to the Gospel. Her manner, her positive words, her servant heart, her graciousness and thankfulness, to me were always an example that made the truth about Jesus attractive in the way she lived out her life. Her favourite saying is, those who leave everything in God's hands will eventually see God's hand in everything. It's going to be one of my favourite sayings too. When she first visited uh, the church I was previously in, uh, as an 80-year-old, some 20 or so years ago, she immediately joined the welcoming team because she thought that was a great way to get to know everybody. Uh, She volunteered one day a week in the church office and even occasionally, dare I say it, helped me with my pigeons. Talk about an adornment of the gospel. She was a beautiful soul that represented Jesus so wonderfully. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful if people looked at our lives when they met us and concluded uh, that Christ and the way we live in following him with peace and joy and thankfulness was attractive. It was a wonderful thing for them to see. If we are to be this community of grace that Paul outlines here to Titus, then we'll need to keep coming back to what has been called the school of grace, which we look to now in the last part of the chapter, picking up in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It talks about grace appearing, don't worry, God has always been gracious, but His grace becomes visible and is personified in the first coming of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says two incredible things about God's grace. First of all, it is our Saviour. God's grace is the means of our salvation, which we could not achieve ourselves. God's grace and the opportunity for salvation comes through the birth, life, death and resurrection 
of Christ. However, God's grace is not just a saviour, it is also our teacher, which is an interesting thing that Paul puts to us here. See, having experienced the saving grace of Jesus in our lives, that grace should be evident as it also teaches us how to live out that grace. So it's a good thing to think about. God's grace saves, but also God's grace teaches us. Now in 1880, which I know is a long time ago, Canon Hay Atkin wrote a little book called The School of Grace. This is where I got the title from here. And he says this, Grace not only saves, but undertakes our training. All Christians become learners in the school of grace. That's true, isn't it? Notice that this saving grace also is offered to all people. No one's excluded. No one, even slaves, can be saved. But also notice that this grace has two epiphanies, that's a word which means two appearings. God's grace appeared with the first coming of Christ, visibly manifest in his birth, life, death and resurrection, which offers salvation to all people. But God's grace will appear a second time, as it says there, I think in verse 14, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So God's grace has these two appearances, if you like. One in humility in Christ when he first came and died for us and the other appearing in great glory at the end of the age with his second coming. And the idea here is that these appearances, these grace appearances, should shape how we live in the present. We're living in between these two times and so we're meant to look back in wonder at all that God has done in sending Christ the first time and dying for us on the cross and rising. But then we should look forward to that magnificent day when he will return in glory and in triumph. And this school of grace, these two appearances, teach us two essential truths for life as grace representatives. Again, it's here in the passage, one is negative and one is positive. Let's quickly look at them. The first one, verse 11, the negative is, it compels us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So grace calls us to renounce the old way of life and to embrace the new one. It calls us to turn away from ungodliness and turn to godliness. It tells us to turn from self-centeredness to self-control from the world that distorts and is devious in its dealings, especially with each other, it tells us that we are meant to be upright and faithful. And again, Paul describes this elsewhere in Colossians, he puts it this way, he says, since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. The next thing is, and set your mind on things above, not earthly things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So there's the negative, you like saying no to ungodliness, but then we're meant to say yes, he says in verse 14, Jesus died for us so that to purify, it says, for himself, a people that are his very own, what for? Eager to do what is good. And this phrase, eager to do what is good, literally means to be enthusiastic for good works. We're not to be fanatics, you probably realise fanatics can be dangerous, but we are called to be enthusiasts and grace trains us for that. 
Uh, you're probably like me, I meet people all the time who are very enthusiastic about things that they like or are interested in. Some people are interested in rugby, surprised at that. Golf, tennis, bowls, swimming, cricket, even politics, all sorts of things. And when you meet certain people, they get very excited about their interests and you might not have known them very long, when you walk away, you know that they're very excited about origami or whatever it was uh, that you had a conversation with them about. That's what enthusiasts are like. I wonder when people meet us and they walk away, what impression do they take away with them? Do they go away knowing that we're enthusiasts for the Lord Jesus? doesn't mean we're shoving it down their throat, but they know that, that we're really excited about being a follower of the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, are you an enthusiast in the Christian life and in the fellowship of this church? Or are you perhaps a reluctant participant? We're called to be active participants in the community of grace. We've all got a part to play. Each of you matters, each of us matters, each of us has a part to play. Well, let me conclude by saying this. We know that we are living in a very complex and confused time in our world history. Our world, despite its many blessings, and there are many privileges to be living at this time in history, our world is still lost. What hope is there for my friend Barry? My goodness, he's a long way from the Lord. But what about your friends? You might not think they're mediums, but they're just as lost nonetheless. Their only hope is the brilliant light of the gospel of grace, which is what Paul keeps going on about here to Titus which is why we need to keep praying that God would raise up gracious and godly leaders to lead our churches that will teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, which is why we need the church community, the community of grace, that's us, both older and younger, to keep modelling and mentoring what it is to be good, living lives of self-control that make us and Jesus attractive to others, like that image of the jewel. And if that's going to be the case, then we need to keep looking back to the cross. Remember how great it is that we have been saved by the Lord Jesus. But then keep looking forward to that wonderful day when he will return in glory and we will share in that glory on his triumphant return. Until that day, we're living in between those days, we've got to keep encouraging one another to live out this grace, to manifest this grace visibly, to allow this grace not just to save us, but to teach us, to transform us, to empower us to keep saying to one another, no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Simple enough? We need each other to keep encouraging and supporting one another to do this, that our world might see Christ in us his church. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you again for the bold words of your servant Paul to Titus and those early church leaders. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to continue to ponder these words and then take them into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your saving grace and we thank you for your grace that teaches us how we are to live good lives marked by self-control and you being at the centre of it. So Father, please continue to shape us, 
Help us to grow our church community here. Help us to be mentoring one to the other, younger and older, that we might walk side by side in this journey of grace and that people in our community might see we are different because of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.